what's your story? Like maybe you've never asked that question and you don't even know how to begin to answer it. Maybe you know how to answer it, but it can go one or two ways. Maybe you feel like either you've kind of got the short end of the stick and everybody seems to get ahead but you. Or maybe you're wondering why you've kind of had it easy and people seem to always have these struggles that God has just blessed you and you almost feel guilty. Wherever you lay on that playing field, it's my belief that all of us have a story. And my hope is that today, like you just saw some pieces of my journey, but my hope is that when I get done here today, you don't see me, you don't see my wife, but what you see is that God is telling his story through every one of us, and we all have that story. You know, thank you guys for having me. I'm super excited to be here. I have been extremely blessed by the worship at this church. Can we just give them a hand? Because it's been amazing. I want to thank the Pewaukee, Pewaukee, I don't know how to say it, Pewaukee campus for joining in. Uh, this is the second week we're live streaming. So if you're watching online and you're in that area, you can go there. And I love to see one church in multiple locations. Super cool. We are in this awesome series called Irresistible. And the first week kind of focused on Jesus being irresistible and how we need to be like him. He wasn't this kind of like to himself, weird dude who hung out and said some profound things. No, he was really cool. Like he'd come into town and multitudes would gather and they couldn't wait to hear what he had to say. And then he'd actually have to slip out because people were like, no, 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 wait, one, one more thing, Jesus, one, just, just one second. Um, we need to be more like that. So now we're trying to be irresistible and attractive and want people to be around us like him. So last week we talked about the next step to that and that we're kind of like sheep. The Bible refers to us as sheep all over because we kind of just, it'd be cool if he called us like lions or something and like something fierce, but he calls us sheep because we're kind of like, oh, it's over here. We kind of wander and we don't do well on our own. So we need groups and we need connection. Um, and I can attest to that. I'd love to tell you that what's kept me in the Word daily for the last five or six years is my dedication to being in the Word and perseverance in my faith. But more often than not, life happens, and we plan to do our devotions, and you get a busy morning, and uh, one of the babies pooped and needs a diaper change, and all sorts of things happen. So what I've found is what helps me is I'm in a text message Bible study, it's been me and these same uh, five guys that have been doing it for a long time. And sometimes I get too busy and I'm running out the door. And what gets me in the word that day is my phone going ding, ding. And, oh, I like this verse. What do you guys think of this? What are your thoughts on this? Hey, this really blessed me. I'm going through this. Pray for me. And I'm reading these messages. And I'm like, I don't care if I have to do audio Bible in the car or read at stoplights. But I got to get in the mix. So... Be attractive, like Jesus, get in a group, now you're in a group, what do you say? And we're on the next step now, and this week is on irresistible story. And like I said, I think all of us have a story. I'm probably more passionate about this topic than anything else. Jesus communicated to his people in stories. He would tell these short parables, which were basically mini stories that seemed really uh, simple on the front end and at the surface, but as we dug deeper, we'll spend our whole life trying to live out what he's saying there. So 
I love stories. Jesus communicated by stories. We communicate and build bonds over it, and we all have them. So to get to know me a little bit better, I need to first introduce you to one of my real-life heroes, Bobby Jean. Uh, this is Bobby Jean. We've been married for eight years. I know. I'm married up. She's awesome. Um, you know, we never thought that in the last eight years we'd go through this much in even a lifetime, but it's been amazing to watch what God has done. We have two awesome little dudes named Justice and Trig. That's Justice on the right and Trig on the left. Uh, our house is full of monster trucks, dirt, and long hair, and it's a lot of fun. <laughs> and as of last week, I want to introduce you to Baby Hardy. And thank you, guys. And I need to be giving you guys an applause because the staff members at this church have been praying for this little guy. And when we talk about story, he already has a story and God's doing big things in his life. Uh, we had planned on having him born at a transplant center. There's three in Florida. And his heart wasn't developing or beating uh, hard enough. It was really hardened up like a little rock. And uh, we were scheduling a heart transplant the day he was born. And in the last five weeks before he was born, um, they put my wife on a steroid and we had people all over the world praying and his heart just started to improve a little bit and a little bit. And we canceled the transplant center appointment and they said, just have him born at the NICU or born, we'll go to the NICU and we'll monitor. And if he needs it in a week or two weeks or three weeks, we'll do it then. And then he came out and they did the tests and the scans and they said, well, we're not going to send him to the NICU and we took him home last week. So... So thank you, anybody who's been praying for Hardy, because uh, there's no transplant that we think is going to be needed now, and he's still little, teeny tiny. He came in four pounds, 10 ounces. He's down to about four pounds, two ounces, but uh, he's hanging in there, and he's doing awesome. You know, people hear our story, and they hear my wife and I's journey, and people are really similar. They say the same things, and I hear patterns, and their thinking, and their questions, and what they say, and, and they use words a lot like, man, you guys are so strong. You're so courageous. They'll, they'll say this one a lot. They'll say, you know, I couldn't deal with it, but God will never give you more than you can handle. That's what the Bible says, which is funny because it's actually one of the most misquoted verses in Scripture. There are a ton of things that I can't handle and you can't handle, but there is nothing that he can't handle. And what that verse is saying is it actually says, we will never be tempted beyond what we can bear. And when we are tempted, he'll provide a way out. But when we face that temptation, whether it's something we're dealing with, like a, a sin or a struggle we're having, or to give into our fears and our doubts, there's two ways we can go. And we can say, look, I'm feeling like this, but your word's saying this. And there are a lot of people who say, God, I know what you're saying, I hear you, but I gotta deal with this on my own. And they go down a road that takes them to a place where they walk away from their family or their faith or, or give up, sink into depression, even take their own life. So there is a lot that we cannot handle, but if we can go down his road, it changes everything. I talked about that word courageous. That was probably coming up more than anything. They wanted to name the documentary you just saw the trailer for, Courageous. And 
I said, well, I think I know what that means, but let's, let me go a little deeper here. Let's define it. So I looked it up in the dictionary, aka Google, because nobody has a dictionary anymore. And it says, courageous is one who is not deterred by pain or by danger or pain, one who is brave. And I read that and I'm like, hey, hon, you hear this? This is what people think we are? Like, it's pretty cool. You kind of puff your chest up a little bit, like, that's cool. But as I thought about it, I was like, that couldn't be further than the truth. Like, I am not courageous. Are you kidding me? Like, I'm, I was that little kid who was so scared of the dark. I'd sleep in my brother's room. Like, I'm not brave. I'm, if there's brave, I'm the opposite. So I thought about it, and I said, what happened in our lives and in this situation that gave people the idea that I was brave or that my wife was brave or courageous? And there's another word that comes into play here. And I want to define it, too, because it's a word we all know, but do we really know it? And it's this word, trust. And the definition for trust is a firm belief in someone or something to be reliable or truthful. So, so believing in it isn't enough, but believing it to be reliable or truthful. And I thought, well, that makes a lot of sense. It's not that I didn't have fears. It's not that my wife didn't have fears and doubts, but what was bigger than our fears and doubts was a firm belief in someone or something in God and his word to be reliable and truthful. And the promises in here say that I have no reason to be afraid. So I was afraid, but this was bigger than that. And that made a lot of sense to me. Guys, I hate to tell you this, but you're going to face some challenges in your life. Like, it's a part of life. We're going to do it. The question isn't, will we face challenges? Not will we have battles, but how are we going to fight? And a lot of us think that we can deal with it when we get there. And um, I, hate to, I hate to maybe ruin your whole worldview on this, but I've been through some big challenges in the last few years. And one thing I've learned is that if we say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take those as they come, and I'm going to stand strong, and I'm just going to kind of take what comes at me and deal with it when that time comes, we are almost always defeated because the enemy is always stronger. The challenge is always bigger. The diagnosis is always worse. Like if we try to come to a place and plan that one day I'll deal with it when I get there, we've already lost. Battles are not won on the battlefield. They're won before it ever begins. Dale Carnegie hits the nail on the head when he's describing us. He's a really smart guy. I lived a long time ago if you never heard of him. But he said, when dealing with humans, it's good to remember we're not dealing with creatures of logic, but we're dealing with creatures of emotion. What he's saying is we don't do what we know. We do what we feel. If we did what we knew, McDonald's would be out of business. Like, I mean, come on, guys. How many Netflix documentaries do we need to see that's like, hey, Fast food is bad for you. Don't eat it. It's making you fat. It's clogging your arteries. It's shutting down your heart. And we're like, that's a great point. I know all that. But did you see that Whopper Juniors are on sale? And it sounds good and convenient and quick. So we don't do what we know. We do what we feel. So, so what, is the, what is the answer here? To make our decisions before we ever get in that situation. When things, when we can think level-headed, say, this is the truth 
that is going to be a part of my life, regardless of my emotions and my feelings, that I can go through these hard things and I can stay the course. I'm not going to get there and say, well, now this happened, do I give up on my faith or not? Do I walk away or not? Because that's when we make bad decisions. That's when we go down roads we shouldn't. You know, I learned about front-end decision-making in a really fun challenge, because there's fun challenges and tough ones. I was 14 years old, and I was never particularly a very great athlete. Like, I was decent, kind of middle-of-the-line kid in middle school. And I loved to play baseball and to skateboard and snowboard and wakeboard and wake skate. And when I was 14 years old, my dad told me a story that forever changed my life about a guy named Roger. And he said, Matt, did you know that for hundreds of years we've measured the time it takes to run a mile? And it's a known fact by runners and coaches and experts alike that nobody can run a mile in under four minutes. But then in May 1954, Roger Bannister runs a sub four minute mile. Just six years later, by 1960, we've had 30 other people do it, or over 30 people. Since then, we've had hundreds of people do it. High school runners have done it. And as a 14-year-old kid, I was like, well, leg technology didn't get much better. Like, maybe, just maybe, something like running, something that we teach sports. I see a lot of football jerseys in here. Maybe sports that we teach to be so physical is way more mental. Maybe we're too busy looking and comparing at the competitors all around us instead of realizing our biggest one is staring back at us in the mirror. So as a regular 14-year-old kid, I went and I said, I'm going to start trying tricks that I've never done and nobody else in the world has ever done, but I'm going to break these barriers mentally. I'm going to do them on the trampoline. I'm going to get the muscle memory, and I'm going to pretend that these are beginner tricks that everybody does. I do them every day. It's no big deal to land them and break through these barriers. Before I knew it, I had a whole bunch of tricks that nobody else in the world could do, and I got a company, or I got a call from a small company in Oregon called Nike, and they said, hey, Matt, we've seen some YouTube videos, and we don't know why you don't have any sponsors. We would like to endorse you head to toe, and when you get a clothing contract and a shoe contract from Nike at 14, you're like, well, I'm not going to college. I know what I'm doing for a living, <laughs> and before I knew it, I was traveling the world, I was getting in ad campaigns, I was getting boat sponsors and all these other things happened, sunglass sponsors, I was getting on magazine covers. And the truth is I wasn't any more talented than any other kid who liked to wakeboard or wake skate. I just chose to think differently, to think that maybe God has designed us and created us in a way that we can achieve and we can do and be more than we ever thought or imagined. And I changed my thinking and it changed my life. Fast forward now about eight years. And in the middle of my wakeboard or wake skate career, God had just kind of worked on my heart and, and made it clear that I was supposed to be in ministry. And I had everybody in the industry telling me I was throwing my life away. But I walked away from my career in a, in a sense. And I went to school for theology. And I'm at the end of school, I'm senior year, about to graduate, and it's been amazing because I thought I'd lose all my sponsors, and God has just kind of blessed, and I was able to keep some of them and uh, support myself financially through school, and my parents were amazing. They were helping with my tuition. They did my tuition, and like everything in my plan was working out perfectly. I was going to 
I was going to drive to Florida. I was going to enter the pro tour. The first stop is in Florida, and then it goes throughout the world from there. And I was going to qualify for this contest, go back, take my final exams, and I'd be working at this church, take a few weekends off a year to compete. It'd be my last year on tour. Like, life's great. I'm in ministry. I'm still doing my sport a little bit. Life's great. I go to Florida. I'm the first rider off the dock, and it's a lake I've been on many times, so I know how many tricks I could fit in. And basically, the lake where you do your tricks comes the lake ends and comes into a canal where the boat goes through at full speed. So you do all your tricks, and then you get behind the boat. It goes through this narrow canal, and it opens up again. The boat turns around, comes back, and that's kind of where the crowd can see you, and you can do all your tricks. So I'm looking at the shoreline. I'm like, I know I can get one more trick in this line. I've got time. And I edge into the wake, and I start my trick, and then I open my eyes, and I'm surrounded by doctors. Just like that, just memory jump. I'm told that I did misjudge the shoreline, and I hit, I hit it at over 30 miles an hour. Um, the shoreline, because it was such a narrow spot, they had dumped cinder blocks, and there was some rebar in it and broken up sidewalk to keep the shoreline from eroding. It was a spot where nobody could see it anyways. And I hit the shoreline, and my skull, the right side of my skull, collapsed. My bro- jaw was broken clean on both sides. My Right hip was dislocated, my tailbone was snapped to the right, and I crushed my hand. So slight mess up in the whole graduate, have this Pinterest life with my new wife, and go in ministry and do my sport. And I'm going to put some pictures up today that might be a little graphic to look at, so you can turn away if you need to, but they really help tell my story. So I woke up in this position, and you can kind of see that the right side of my face is covered up and had collapsed. And the doctors told me, they're like, you know, Matt, everything above and below this pressure point that we know as our temple, you didn't just hit on the rocks, but you collapsed it. Like a head trauma that bad should have and could have killed you. And um, it wasn't that I was ungrateful. Like I was thankful to be alive, but I looked at my life and my world was just flipped upside down. Like I I, I, I I could go on for hours about all these areas of my life that how was I going to graduate? How was I going to provide for this awesome wife I had? Where was I going to work? What was I going to do? I couldn't walk. I was using a walker to walk. I couldn't drink solid or I couldn't eat solid food for three months. I was drinking through a straw and it's like my whole world had flipped and I thought that I had relied on God and I told people I relied on God but this was a wake-up call that I really relied on myself a lot. And in the recovery over the next eight months, I learned about a God that I didn't know. A more personal God, the God that Paul was talking about. Paul's this guy who wrote most of the New Testament of the Bible. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he's talking about the struggle that he has. And he says, three times, I pleaded with God, take this away from me, please. And this is the answer that God gives them. And he says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, well, then I'll boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that your power can rest on me. I looked at this verse in a totally new light because I saw that the bigger the gap was between me being able to fix these situations like I always wanted to do, 
and them actually getting fixed and God bringing people into my life and taking care of all these situations, the clearer it was that this wasn't me. This was him. This was his power resting on me and he gets the glory here. It's not me and my wife are strong and him. It's just him. And you only get one near-death accident in your life, right? Like, that's fair. So I, that's what I thought. Um, I said, okay, I'm going to go back to this word trust. Like, whatever happens from this point forward, God, like, that was my one testimony story. But whatever happens, I'm all in. Like, I'm sold out for you. I'm going to trust in you because I've seen a time where I couldn't see a way out. I couldn't see how you could use it. I couldn't see how you could work through it. And you did. But little did I know, it was preparing me for the storm ahead. It was preparing me for the accident that would forever change my life. Two years later, I had just been a year since recovery, and I'd been working in ministry, and I was helping trim trees at a church in Orlando. And we needed the the trees trimmed along the sidewalk, and we rented this high-reach bucket. And one minute, I was up in the bucket, and next, I was waking up from a coma. What happened? Where am I? Matt, you've been electrocuted. Electrocuted? I was totally shocked. Like, <laughs> oh, now you're going to laugh at the burn victim. Real cool, guys. <laughs> Bobby Jean was there, and she was pregnant with Justice with our first child, and... They held her back, held her back. She said it looked like something from almost like an A&P book where all of the skin immediately burned off kind of my upper body and my rib cage was exposed, my sternum, my clavicle, my bones were hanging out and my muscles were hanging out, that, the ones that were left. And um, they held her back, held her back and eventually said, hey, he's dying, let her come say goodbye. And she said goodbye to me and they put me in the ambulance. Uh, when I got to the hospital, that first surgery was really long they were super honest with my family. They said, Matt has fourth and fifth degree burns all over his upper body. And a lot of people haven't even heard of fourth and fifth degree burns. We, we talk about third degree a lot, where um, third degree burns through all the layers of skin. And then fourth degree starts burning through the muscle. And then fifth degree burns through the muscle and starts burning the bone. And even in very small concentrated areas where people can just get a fifth degree burn in one spot, uh, it's usually fatal because what happens is the muscle tissue dies and your blood flows through that muscle and it shuts down your kidneys and heart and you go septic pretty quickly. So with all these burns all over my upper body, it wasn't really an if, but when. Um, they told my family that with all this that I didn't have much of a chance, if any, and even if I did live, the brain damage was severe because I had my phone right where I still keep it today, and I had headphones on. So the electricity, I was holding the controls to the bucket, it was kind of running around like this, and it caught that headphone wire, and went down my leg, and it melted my iPhone to my leg. And I actually have a little Apple symbol burn here, I get free phones now. No, I'm, just <laughs> I'm just kidding, I have a six ass, I'm way out of date. But no, it did, it melted my phone to my leg, then it went up the headphone wires, and it melted the earbuds inside my ears and then blew out of the top of my head. So all of the electricity exited through the front and the back of my skull. So they said the brain damage is severe. Uh, they wanted to amputate my arms right away, but 
my family fought and wouldn't sign the papers. And finally, uh, about five days in, they said, we're sorry, but it's, it's not up to you anymore. My arms had turned black and there wasn't having blood flow. They said, it's amazing he's lived this long, um, but we're not gonna let his arms kill him now that we've made it this far. So they scheduled a surgery for 9 a.m. to amputate both my arms at the shoulders. And my parents just didn't want to accept it. And they just kept fighting and fighting and fighting. And finally, at midnight, Dr. Smith, my head surgeon, he said, Mr. Manzari, you have to understand that in the morning, we're amputating your son's arms. And you have no say in that. We've put a call in to Dr. Llewellyn. He's the best orthopedic surgeon we have in Central Florida. He's not on call, and it's the middle of the night. If he wants to come in and try something, great. But if not, and probably either way, they're coming off. And Dr. Llewellyn came in in the middle of the night and said, if they're coming off, this is really aggressive, but I'm going to do this. And um, he did a really deep fasciotomy where he made deep lacerations up and down my arms, hundreds of tiny lacerations. And he actually allowed me to bleed out, and he put these wound vacs on my arms and bleed out on the table while they pump new blood in my central line. I don't have any of my original blood. It's all been filtered out, and I have new blood in. Um, but he did this, and it brought life and circulation back and broke through the blood clots. And about a year later, I was actually getting my wrist fused, and I went to him because he's the best ortho, because uh, I, I did lose control of this wrist, and it was just kind of limp. And I was explaining to him the issues and how I'd lost uh, ability to move my fingers in the left hand and the wrist. And he just kind of stopped me. And he said, Matt, I'm the guy, I'm not bragging, but I'm the guy they call when they don't have any other options. And when I was saving your arms that night, I was kind of doing it. Your, your parents were being a pain in the butt, and I was kind of doing it the way we would save someone's legs in a wheelchair. But I cut through tendons, through finger flexors, through muscle tissue that was left. And I knew you would never have, you'd have little, if any, function of your arms again. And I have no idea why you move your arms the way you do. And it was just like, it was amazing. I always thank him by name from stage. I actually was speaking in a church once. And they came up to me afterwards. I didn't even know he was a believer. And him and his wife were there. And it was like the coolest thing ever that I got to thank him. But I, I'm still like every time I see him, I'm like, I owe you my arms. And I fall apart and I cry. And it's great. When we made, so the trailer to the film you just saw, we actually showed the full film last night to the youth. Um, it's, gonna, it's a 20-minute film. And it's going to be on Right Now Media in the next few months. And we're going to have a, a six-week Bible study off of it that small groups can do and um, you can explore what your story is as you see my story. But when we were going through the film, we wanted something quantitative because you say 14 to 21,000 volts, and uh, the church was a big building about the size of this building, and it was the main line that powered it, but you can almost lose, like, those are just numbers. So we called the power company. We said, we need something quantitative. Like, what does this really mean? And they got their engineers on it and called us a few days later and said, okay, we can't really find a statistic for surviving this kind of voltage flowing directly through somebody, but here's what we do have. 
the same voltage you received at a minimum, if only two of the three lines were involved to create this arc, is the same as if we hooked you up to at least six electric chairs and flipped them all on. So we don't know why you're here. And it's just been amazing to see how God's worked in this story. Like I said, I'm going to put some pictures up that might be a little bit graphic, but they help tell my story. And these next two are, but this is the position I was when I was in the coma. Um, and there was just really no hope. Like, that was, uh, everything was swollen. As you see, my face is kind of like a big circle. Uh, I was losing a lot of blood every day. This next picture is actually about a month in, and that's the first attempt to lay an artificial layer. You can't put skin grafts right on top of muscle tissue and bone. So that's like a fake lab-made layer to put, so then you can lay skin grafts. And that black thing in my chest that makes me look like I'm cool like Iron Man is actually burnt bone. That's burnt sternum bone that we couldn't put the Integra until we cut part of that bone off. Um, this next picture is one of my favorite pictures from the whole time. Because you can see my wife smile through her mask. And she would come in, and a time that should have been all about her, we're having our first child, and it's supposed to be like she's the princess and take care of her, was all about me. And we've been to many trauma events. I've, I've been to the National uh, Burn Conventions and things like that. And it is overwhelming how many times a spouse will walk into a situation like this and go, I, I didn't sign up for this, I'm out, and walk away. But not her. She decided on the front end, for better or worse means for better or worse, that we're planning on having this cool Pinterest-like marriage that's going to be amazing. We're going to have a cute little family and be in ministry and be like drinking coffee at church. But that's not what happened. But that didn't change the course she was on. And I would find out later that she'd come in, smile next to me, and then walk in the hall and collapse and wonder if that was the last time she ever spoke to her husband, wonder if our son would ever get to meet me. 26 times in the last three years, she's held my hand while I went under anesthesia and while under had over 70 different operations. But she has stayed the course. It's funny, we, sp we spoke to the youth last night and we did a Q&A afterwards, and I don't think I've ever done a Q&A and not got this question. It's probably the most popular question. And somebody said, if you could go back and warn your younger self, would you change it? And that's the hardest question for me to ask myself. And I've put a lot of time into that question, and I have cried just over that question, just thinking about what that moment would be like to speak to a 20-year-old version of myself, the temptation to say, don't get in that bucket. But the answer is no, I wouldn't. If I could go back and talk to a younger version of myself, I would say this. I'd say, hey, Matt, remember when we were young, Remember when we were young and we were scared of the dark and we'd, we'd hear a noise in our room and we'd know there was a monster in the closet or under a bed or something. We'd eventually get so scared, we'd get up and we'd turn the light on. And I'd get up, I'd get out of bed, I'd turn the light on and I'd look around and I'd see the truth was that I was fine, that I was safe, that I was taken care of. And I'd flip the light off and I'd get back in bed 
And pretty quickly, as I sat in the darkness, I forgot the truth that I learned in the light. Don't forget the truth that you learned in the light. Make decisions now about your life and your faith while things are still good. You know, one thing that helped me, because some of you might say, Matt, that's great to make decisions when things are good, that I'm going to move forward, but I'm in it right now, and I don't see a way out, and I need a little bit of hope. And one thing that really gave me hope is, have you ever seen the event that takes place when a pacifier or a binky falls out of a baby's mouth? Like, it's pretty life-changing. If you haven't seen this, go get yourself a baby. Kids, get married first, then get yourself a baby. Give them a binky and watch what unfolds. Like, we're about four months into being parents, and Justice is on the floor in the kitchen, and his binky falls out of his mouth. And if he could talk, by his body language and facial expressions, his universe just collapsed. Like, why am I here? That was my lifeline. It's gone. Why did you and mom bring me into this place? I hate my life. And we as parents look down and we're like, little dude, take it down like 10,000 notches. Like, you are fine. Dude, it's not gone for, oh, forever. It's clipped to your shirt. It's right here. <laughs> We've overcome the binky issue. Like, take it down. We're okay. But then we get a little bit older. And maybe we're a teenager and our parents move to a new town Maybe our friends say something behind our back and kind of stab us in the back, we feel like, or our heart's broken for the first time. And once again, our universe collapses. And nobody gets it. Nobody understands. My parents don't get it. My friends don't get it. And it may be a little longer than the binky fix, but a few weeks, a month, a couple months go by, and we realize, okay, maybe everything's okay. Maybe I was a little dramatic. But then we grow up, and we forget we're like that and we're burnt, we're electrocuted, we're diagnosed with cancer, we lose a loved one, we go through a really hard struggle, and once again, our universe collapses. And I picture God looking down saying, little dude, we've overcome the binky issue, I've overcome the grave, you are on the verge of, of eternity. What is 50 or 60 years in a burnt, broken body compared to forever in a perfect one? And using it for my glory, like we've overcome this. And if he's in me and I'm in him, then we've overcome this issue. We can have kingdom living that starts right now in the midst of our pain. One of the verses that really got me through all of this was uh, in John 16, He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have struggles. You will have trouble. Not you might, you could, you'll probably, you will. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And we hit these situations and we're asking and we're pleading, God, change this, take this, take this cup from me, I can't do this. But hasn't he already? Because what he did on the cross has said that, hey, in this life or the next, the spoiler alert, the end of this book is that no matter what happens, in the end, I bring full restoration to all things and I make all things right. That's the God we serve, a God that we could say, if you never do another thing for me, I still owe you the rest of my life. And I don't want to mix it up. I want to be clear here. I want to separate something that we don't. Pain and suffering are different things, but we use them interchangeably. Pain is inevitable. 
but suffering is optional. Pain are the things that happen in our lives to us, but suffering is when those things break us. And we can face large amounts of pain, but we don't have to suffer. And the world shows courage and bravery so differently than it should, because what it really shows is the world will tell us that courage looks like maybe, maybe like that guy at the end of the movie who's like, everyone's falling apart and he's just stone-faced. He's got like his arm around the girl and he's fine. It doesn't really bother him. That's not courage. That's fake. That's putting on a mask. Like emotions and vulnerability and talking about the pain you're going through is okay. Jesus was the ultimate man of courage. And one of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture is John eleven thirty five, 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Now, he knew the beginning from end. He knew the course he was on. He faced a situation where he saw the death of his friend and the pain that was happening all around him and the devastation, and he's seeing people suffer, and he's in that moment, and even he breaks down, and Jesus wept. But it didn't change that he was trusting in the truth, that he was trusting on the course he was on, and it doesn't have to change ours. We can face these large amounts of pain, and it doesn't need to change where we're going. Probably the most common question regarding faith that believers, unbelievers, People leave the church because of it. People won't join the church because of it. Pastors don't want to talk about it, so let's talk about it. Why does a loving God allow pain and suffering? Do we serve a fair God is the question. My answer, and I've probably looked more into this topic than anything else, and I don't have all the answers, but this is my answer, is that we don't. We serve an unfair God. And just give me a second. Don't throw me off stage yet. Just hear me out. What is fair? Let's define it. Fair is a cause and effect. It's what should happen and we're okay with happening because it's fair. So fair is we put our hand on a stove, our hand's burning. We don't say, God, why are you burning my hand? Like, it's fair that I'm burning my hand. The Bible says the wages of sin is death and who have sinned all. So if we were to serve a fair God, we don't deserve the life that we're living. We don't deserve to be here today. Why is it that the best doctor said not if, but when his kidneys fail? The best doctor said not is there brain damage, but how bad is it? They were sure my arms were coming off. Sure the brain damage was severe. Sure they were keeping me comfortable until I died. Why were the best doctors wrong again and again and again? Why? Because we serve an unfair God who's crazy about you, and it's not merited. It's not that I deserve it, but every once in a while, he steps in this world, and he says, this is still my world, and these are still my people, and I have the last say. That's the God we serve who doesn't want to see you or I broken by our challenges, but he's given us everything in his word to get through this life and to say, hey, I'm right here. I want to turn your obstacles and opportunities. I can take you from bitter to better and use your, miser- your misery for my ministry. That's our God, powerful God. I don't know what you brought in here today. I know that I wear my scars on my arms for the whole world to see, but some of the things you guys are dealing with right now are much deeper and are unseen. But God sees it. 
my dad is probably my best friend. We do everything together. I want to put a picture up of me and my dad. This is when I first started speaking. He's, uh, he was helping me at the Youth Workers Convention as I was telling people I wanted to share my story. We ride bikes together. We go wakeboarding together. We build cars together. And this next one, we're just going to leave up for a minute. When I look at these guys, and now Hardy, it's hard to imagine that my dad looks at me like I look at these little dudes. Like, when I see them, I just want to wrap them in bubble wrap and keep them safe from the world. Like, I don't want anything bad to ever happen to them. And my dad looks at me and sees his little boy. And it is so hard for me as a father to think my parents looked into my eyes and watched helplessly as their little boy lay there broken and bleeding with burns everywhere, getting scrubs on open wounds daily, screaming, suffering, and probably dying, and being able to do nothing about it. But how much harder would it be to look into those eyes and watch as everybody we love beats me and drags me down the street, ridicules me, whips me, and sit there idly while nails are put into my hands and feet and I'm hung on a cross. All the while being able to stop it, but not stopping it for no other reason than he wants to know you. For no other reason than he's saying, I'm doing this so I can have a relationship with you that will never end. I'm doing this because I see your challenge, I see the struggle you're in, I see the depths of your pain, and I want you to know I'm right here. I've always been here. Like I said, I don't know what you are going through. I don't know what you're going to go through or what you have been through, but I do know that we serve a God who's standing there with open arms saying, hey, I'm right here. I've always been here, and when you're ready, I want to walk through this with you, and I want to use your challenges and your story to change lives all around you, including your own. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this group of people. I thank you for this message that that this is not my message at all. I can't speak, but this is from you. I thank you that you promise to be a part of our lives through the good, through the bad, and that you want to use our story and you want to have this relationship with us. Lord, I pray for wisdom. Your word says we can pray for that wisdom for everybody here, including myself, that we can see the way that you are working. Not our will, but yours be done, that we can see how you're working in the midst of the challenges we face and will face, and that we don't have to live in this depressed, broken world that we say, oh, life is hard, but one day we have eternity. I pray that we can see that we have kingdom living right now, that we can be content and have tremendous amounts of joy in the midst of our pain. Lord, I thank you for the work that you're doing in this church and for the work you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.